This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. My name is Vino. I am a pediatrician and a visual artist. I live in Austin, Texas, but I was born and raised in rural Pennsylvania. And I've been practicing for almost 20 years in medicine and as a professional artist in the past eight. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all of Thank you for coming on today. And uh, I was really delighted because this topic of art and medicine uh, live very closely within my heart because I have so many medical uh, profession people in my life that love the arts and support what I do and what my community of artists do. So to find somebody who lives at the intersection of art and medicine, uh, I was, it was a special treat for, for, to get that uh, message from you. So thank you for spending time with me today. Yeah, absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. We both <laughs> share uh, that historical fact with uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen, which is uh, one of four entry points into the US uh, with the sponsorships in 1975. Um, Fort Indiantown Gap is, Fort yeah. Indiantown Gap, Pennsylvania is a, a shared uh, point for your your family and my family as well. So mm -hmm. they landed in Fort Indiantown Gap and they spent a few months there. And tell me about what happens after they get out. Like you were born there and what, what happens? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's like the typical, I mean, I don't wanna say typical bold story because there's so many different, different journeys, right? Of how we get to the US, um, but it was one of those situations where my father was in the South Vietnam Navy and he was a, an officer. So it was one of those situations where here he was with his young pregnant wife. I always say I was conceived in Vietnam and born in the U.S. Um, and yeah, exactly. Same with you. We're only two months apart. Crazy. <laughs> um, so he he needed to obviously leave. Otherwise, he would have been either killed or in a, you know, a re-education camp. Right. Those were the choices. So they left this boat people at the fall of Saigon, uh, April 1975, and um, found themselves picked up by the U.S. Navy, sent to Guam first, I think, and then ended up at uh, Indian Town Gap. Um, I think that a um, few two months later, they were sponsored by a church um, and um, a family that basically became my grandparents. And um, I was born in September and they moved then to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. So Indian Town Gap and Harrisburg are like maybe I think like 45 minutes apart, an hour apart, not too far. Um, have you been? Yeah, that's how been, we settled uh, there. Have you been back to uh, Indian Town Gap? You know, my parents took me one year a long, long, long time ago, ages ago. I think when we were still living in Pennsylvania at the time. Um. So, so once I think it may have been for the anniversary, the fall of Saigon. Were you how old we were you at the time? I think I was a teenager. 
Hmm. You know, like when they they took me. So it's, I mean, so it's so faintly of, of a memory, but I remember them taking us there. I think once. So um, I I had joined the Marines at uh, seventeen, got out at twenty one. My parents wow. left Indian Town Gap without telling their sponsors. They 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 were Lutheran sponsors. My parents were Catholics, and they couldn't deal with the conversion process or the the implied uh, pressure, mm-hmm. and so. They just picked up in the middle of the night, basically, and left after three months of being there. So they had me and they bounced and there's no contact. That's so interesting to me because it's almost like it was representative of what their journey was leaving Vietnam. Yeah. Right. In in the same way, it was like that, that reaction of like, okay, like that fight and flight of we need to leave. Uh, my parents were sponsored by a Presbyterian church. And so they weren't as, pardon me? They didn't get as pressured. They didn't get us pressured. No, I remember my. I actually do remember this. Them bringing someone to the house with like a projector and like, you know, Bible coloring books and stuff like that. And my dad just had lots of questions, and they couldn't answer them the way he wanted, you know, uh, them to answer it or be clear about it. That he was just like, okay, this is not for me, you know. And my parents are, I mean, they're they're Buddhist, you know, um, but Buddhist in the most Christian way as well. I could say, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, you know? um, but yeah, so we didn't feel pressured, you know, by our sponsors and they became our family. Like they're my grandparents, really, and my aunts and uncles and holidays. And we, they were our window into American culture and traditions. Right. Like, yeah. I'll tell you this one story. It's really funny. So my mom is living in an apartment. I was just born and my dad was away at work and it was late. At, it was at, at night. It was dark. And all of a sudden she starts hearing the doorbell ring constantly. And she would peek out the window and she saw all these scary faces in masks. And she was so freaked out. She was so freaked out. She like hid in the, in the bedroom, scared. She was like crying because she didn't know what to do. Right. And she, apparently she called my sponsor family and they're like, oh, we forgot to tell you about Halloween. <laughs> that is hilarious. What a so great funny. story. It's such a funny story. But like, you know, those things that you grow up in America being first generation and not having, you know, not knowing the cultural norms or or like traditions or like what is socially acceptable. Like it was interesting, like the whole idea of like sleepovers. You know, as a kid, I was I was, you know, grew up in a very strict home, of course. I didn't really have a lot of friends and I wasn't allowed to, you know, do a lot of things out with my friends and stuff and of course like sleepovers like what we're we're supposed to let you go sleep with complete strangers you know at their house like that's unheard of like as opposed to in our village you know we knew everybody you know so it wasn't like you know a question of like safety at all so it's just interesting having grown up with such a vast uh cultural difference yeah my my parents didn't deal with it they left so after I joined the military, uh, you know, we broke contact with them for so 20 something years. And um, the months leading up to my um, honorable discharge, I contacted the family. I looked them up in the phone book at the time in 1996, end of 96. I was getting when out. phone books were still around. Yeah. And well, I called them and they're like, I was like, hey, I'm looking for because my name was named after Kenneth Eugene Spangler 
which is the patriarch of the fact. I'm looking for Kenneth Eugene Spangler. Uh, I am Kenneth Eugene Wynn. And they just like, you could hear the jaw drop. And I was like, I was the baby that was born in your church when, you know, my parents came and I would like to come visit. Um, uh, my, I'm born around Thanksgiving. And so I'd like to come and spend time with your family during Thanksgiving. So I flew in, in my dress blues uniform and I was spent time to, to thank them and explain to them, you know, my parents, um, just couldn't understand the conversion process at the time. And my apologies. And so we spent like a, a week and I got to know their family. They took me to 40 Newtown Gap and they walked me through the hole. It was just an amazing. And then I kept in touch with them um, from then on. And uh, that, that yeah, we're I'm still in touch with the family. Um, so I will always have. That's, that's great. I'm so glad that you did that. Yeah. Yeah. So when I hear your story. I, mean, I think that's, that's something that's like. Go ahead. Yeah. So when I hear your story of a beautiful uh, upbringing uh, in rural Pennsylvania and the roots that we share, you, me, Vitan Nguyen, you know, we're all from Fort Indiantown Gap and a number of other people who've been on the podcast have come from Fort Indiantown Gap. So it's a very special thing for us. You know, it, um, it's 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 yeah. awesome to, to hear that. And so when you uh, were growing up, you spent your entire youth in uh, Pennsylvania, right? Yep. And when born and raised and, and grew up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, all the way up through college, went to Penn State for undergrad, Philadelphia for medical school. So pretty much Pennsylvania for a lot of it. Um, Austin's the first city actually I've lived in longer than my childhood home. Wow. I've been here for almost 20 years now. So no. kind of crazy to think of it that way. Along the road of your medical uh training and all of that when did you get the sense that you were an artist oh i always knew ever since i was young then i mean i was an artist when i was young how did you deal with this idea that you were going to become a doctor versus not being a full-time artist it wasn't an option <laughs> tell me about that did they did they like put a gun to your head and say, you know, this, oh, you no, no. I, mean, I guess I didn't think it was an option. I, I, in some ways, I don't know, like you battle with that feeling of responsibility. You know what I mean? Um, having known that your parents sacrificed everything for you, risking life and death was such a massive feeling of responsibility that you're supposed to take advantage of every opportunity possible, you know, um, because your parents sacrificed their life. They left everyone. Like my parents, like you talked about how your parents left in the middle of the night of their sponsors. My parents did that without telling their family in Vietnam. Yeah. You know, didn't tell their family in Vietnam that they were leaving, you know, packed a small suitcase with two shirts, two pants and their wedding album. That was it. And, you know, and didn't send a letter home until like months later. And so, you know, knowing that they left very, both very large families. My dad had nine sisters. My dad, my mom had like five brothers and a sister, you know, they were the first to leave. Um, it just felt, you know, when, when that decision point came in high school, it just felt like the right thing to do, to you know, and it wasn't too far off from my heart either. I mean, let, let, let me kind of go back a bit. So as when I was growing up, 
art was my salvation. Being isolated culturally, being isolated from social childhood friendships and, you know, what everyone else had that I wasn't exactly able to experience, you know, like it was really confusing as a child and emotionally, the only way I could process or feel in touch with who I was was through art. I, I drew a lot. I, I painted, I wrote a lot. I mean, writing is my other passion, you know, writing prose and poetry and dance. So creatively, um, I, it was part of who I was, you know, uh, all those things, writing, uh, painting and dance. That was how I expressed myself creatively. Were, were you able to share this with your mom and dad? Yeah. I mean, they saw it, you know, the little girl dancing by herself in the public, you know, the music and like, you know, I danced all the Vietnamese ballroom dances with my dad and, mm. you know, and um, I won art competitions and stuff like that at the state level. So it's not like they didn't see it and they weren't aware of it. And I also was interested in architecture. So I was looking at like Carnegie Mellon actually for their architecture program. So it was like, it was one of these things where um, they supported it. You know, but at the end of the day, it was kind of like one of those things where it's like, okay, well, what makes more logical sense? And what's, what are you going to have more likely have a secure future with, you know? And, you know, it's, it's one of those things where our parents think about that survival, security, financial security means survival, right? And, and accomplishment, you know, obviously is, is a big thing in our culture as well. And so um, I volunteered at a children's hospital in high school. Um, I was really good in science terrible at math, you know, <laughs> and my dad was like, you need to be good at math to be an architect, which at the time I didn't know was untrue because there's architectural engineers that figure that out for you. So, you know, it was like, just like the unknowing of like what that looks like and thinking that I'm just going to end up being a draftsman and not have my creative freedom. But medicine also, honestly, now that I look back at it, like I realized there's some safety in that of like knowing I don't have to figure out who I'm going to be or what I'm going to do for my life for the next 11 years. Right. It's like college, medical school, residency. So in some ways I was delaying um, some of like, even though it was, it was very focused, I was delaying having to throw myself into a career right away. Um, it's that whole like, well, my, my life is determined for me, so I don't have to worry about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And the pressure to kind of figure out anything that you are wondering about is delayed and it gives you space to kind of just kill time and learn this profession. <laughs> kill time. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Well, Not because... medicine. <laughs> Slow death, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's yeah. kind of like a Freudian slip for me. You know, look, I I value the medical profession so much because oh, I do um, too. Yeah, I have, yeah I have, it's a blessing. I yeah. mean, but I also went into it knowing I just wanted to do pediatrics. I wasn't going to do anything else. Like I love children and I love babies, and also like you know, there's something about wanting to be around that youthful energy, but also dealing with so much pressure, family, society, and all that kind of stuff in adult world. Like it was kind of like wanting not to have if i'm going to do medicine right then i want to do it on my terms yeah where i know that i'm not going to have to deal with 
all the adult stress as well on top of it, you know, like it was almost like a detachment a little bit, you know, like if you notice every, every medical field has a certain personality type yeah. and, um, the pediatricians, we are like the happiest and like, you know, just joyful because we're around kids and babies and new life. And then like, you know, how can you not be around that? And in some ways, like it, it makes life less, feel less stressful and serious in a way, you know, do even you, though it is a stressful job. Do you have kids? I do. I have two boys. They are 11 and 15. So now do your, and this is not even about the work that we're, do, we're talking about right now, but um, does the training of being a pediatrician make it easier to, to, to raise these boys? I mean, in the early days, or does it make it harder and more stressful because you know so much? Actually, I think being a pediatrician makes me a better parent, but being a parent makes me a better pediatrician. That's mm. more important. That's more important because then you can have more empathy and compassion for parents and their situation and what they're going through because you walked the walk. And now this is going to lead me to the next question. Mm. How much of your art informs your medicine and medicine informing the art? In every way. It, it's How so? How so? Well, let me, I, I think the best way to explain it would be how did I start and why? How did I get back to my art? You know, I think that's the, that's the journey, right? That's the, that's the question. So, you look, know, here I was. Look at you leading this interview. Sorry. <laughs> this has happened twice now. I'm, I don't think that I don't pay attention to this. You're like, wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm leading this interview, Ken, not you. I, I happily hand over the reins uh, for you Sorry. to this interview. No, no, no. It's beautiful. Please, please. Because this Well, was... you know, I do public speaking too. That's my other thing that I've been doing as well. So you know how to structure these things. Uh, I like to jump around every now and then because, you know, this was further down the queue of questions. But okay. no, no, it's beautiful. I, I, I'm, I'm going to roll with the punch. I'm going to let you lead this. Well, you know, I mean, because to answer your question, I have to. I have to go to that. Absolutely. place of like, how do they inform each other? So, you know, here I was 10 years into my medical career. I was chief of pediatrics, married with two kids. And I found myself actually not feeling fulfilled, not fully happy and not knowing why I was, I was, I, to be honest with you, I was depressed and I didn't understand why. Cause here I was, I had followed everything that everyone told me I was supposed to do. Right. I did everything that was expected of me. I accomplished, I got to, you know, even a high level in medicine, like leadership position. And like, in the, but I didn't feel like I was living the life I was meant to live. And it was really, um, it was really distressing, you know, to realize that all the things that you have wrapped up in your idea of your identity and your happiness, not feeling that once you get there and you accomplish it, it it's, it's really, it, it rocks your world. You know, it makes you question everything. And so what happened was one day, my girlfriend who got tired of hearing me talk about doing art again for my birthday, sent me like this, like nine foot by five foot canvas to my house and says, okay, now get off the pot. Right. And like, cause my dining room was like what I wanted to paint for. And it was that size. And it scared me. Like, I was like, I, I haven't done this in over 20 years. How could I possibly pick up a paintbrush? Um, and then one day she took me out to lunch and, you know, had a few drinks and I think gave me some liquid courage and like, finally, like, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. And 
once I started though, like it was insanity. It was like, almost like I opened up this door internally that had been closed for so long that was just like building up and building up this energy that could no longer be contained. And I could not stop painting. That painting was like, I would go to work, take care of the kids, put them in bed, be in the studio, my dining room, and like paint, paint, paint until like I got tired, did it all over again the next day. Like it was like every moment I could, I was painting and working on my art. And once I was done with that painting, I just kept going and applied my um, discipline and my practice that I've learned through medicine to my art. Like I studied and studied and studied and did everything, wanted to learn every technique, every kind of style, every kind of medium. I was obsessed, you know, um, and I felt alive again. Like I felt like myself. I finally felt like I knew who I was. And in doing so, like I finally found the freedom to express myself where and, and start to like, I realized all the life experience I had been harboring for those 20 years was basically percolating for material, right? And what I found interesting though, is it made me more present when I was at work because I was feeling fulfilled in something else. I didn't feel depleted. I didn't feel burned out. It allowed me to feel connected to myself, allowed me to feel connected to others in my work, in my family and so forth. Um, I started to feel like whole. Okay. So when you ask like, how does my artwork and medicine inform each other? They are a whole part of me, my right brain and my left brain merged together. The way we solve problems in medicine is very similar to the way I solve problems when I'm in front of a canvas. Oh, okay, so uh, I I'm going to jump off and ask a very personal question, and you mm -hmm. can decline this question if if you because it just kind of relates to me, and when it relates to me, I I kind of have these curious moments. Now, I I went through a similar pro process, but not feeling the depression. I just felt the pressure of of switching over and. I wanted to do podcasting 10 years ago. Uh, so when I finally did do it, I felt the transition and it affected my marriage mm -hmm. because I became a, a totally different, it transformed who I became and it liberated yeah. certain parts of, did you find that to happen in your life? Because it sounds like you metamorphosed into a completely different human being. And so where yeah. does the marriage, where does the, that married life of who you once were, right? Because it feels like the energy, it, it sounds like we have that kind of parallel journey with our like awakening. Did yeah. it, if, and feel free to decline this question, but I, I, I'm curious because I, I went through something similar and it broke apart my marriage and, you know, but I look back and I'm like, it's okay because that was sort of like what was meant to be for me. And mm -hmm. I'm curious if, you know, if, if it, trend like something transpired in your your relationship uh with with it your did. partner it did it did i'm i'm all about transparency and vulnerability i think that's the only way that we can speak to yeah, our great. journeys and it allows people to connect in a way of understanding that they're not the only ones and that there is no straight line yeah in life and that there is no suffering there's always going to be suffering in life in some form, but it's a place of growth and it's a place of learning. Um, and so for me, um, unfortunately it did, you know, it, 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 I 
became a person that was fulfilled in a way uh, where my partner did not sign up for that life, you know, and, and, but there was a lot of other things though, too. But once you start foundationally start shifting and changing and growing in a different way, all the other things come along with it, right? It just, everything, everything just breaks, like gets magnified. Yeah. And then for me, it was COVID. Um, That was definitely when it finally was like, it was definitely, that was like, what are we doing? You know, like it's, it's clear that we our trajectory of life and what we want are in two different areas and they don't align. And we made the conscious um, decision together, um, you know, to separate and uh, to raise our children in the healthiest way, co-parenting. And I, I believe in redefining yourself. You can redefine what family means and do it in a healthy way. um, And in in a place where you try to reduce as much trauma as possible knowing that that's still going to happen, right? Like there's still going to be things that my children experience through my choices, just like I experience things through my parents' choices. It's inevitable. We cannot protect anyone from life. I bring this up because art has a profound impact on who we are as human beings. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes that we reflect about our history as a culture, we don't allow for these magnificent outbursts of art or like really living the way we should be. And so we find ourselves in these quagmires, right? Like shifting, shifting, uh, shifting perspectives of going from like, you know, I was a traditional business person, but I always had my foot in in the, the doors of, of film and art and yeah. i once i got liberated all of the values of who i was began to kind of come to the surface and i had to like i had to free myself and free my partner and you know we 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 are very uh we're we're we're, we're on very good terms but i can't imagine you it, it's just i can't imagine when you shift like that uh things stay intact right because we're like stars that are just like kind of like uh bursting yeah so i i i'm very particular about wording how we frame things and i don't think that it's like that things stay intact i think it's that things have to shift and change together or they just don't and when as creatives when we expand it is explosive Because we as creatives, what we are, and I believe this, are receptors to the universe's creative energy. Mm -hmm. We are the vectors and mediums of human life experience. And because of that, it is very much in, once we allow it to happen, it becomes part of our bloodstream and it's how we pulse through life that unless the support system around us helps us to shine anything else would just be pushed away because it doesn't allow us to grow and allow us to uh, continue to receive that, you know, creative message and energy. I think that's how we collectively um, heal each other. I think that's how we collectively share our voices. And I think like, because of that, it's, it's, we, we can't contain it. 
you know, and when, when you're in situations and relationships that don't allow that to grow and, 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 um, continue to expand, it's just inevitable, you know, it's just who we are as human beings. And I think that's interesting about our culture is that like, unless our creative endeavors were the top 1% in a very disciplined manner of like piano or like violin or, you know what I mean? Like the socially, culturally acceptable endeavors that like, you know, you become the top 1% in that, then it's not um, seen as, uh, as uh, valuable. Yeah. And, and I think that's attributed to just this limited scope of understanding what sort of possibilities exist in the art world in America or the diaspora or globally, you know, that's yeah. it's just the limitation of understanding from a previous generation. And by the mm-hmm. way, that previous generation that landed in the United States, just to be clear, is the first generation, right? We are second generation, second generation. right? So the first generation, it there's a limited scope of understanding of like what what because there's so much so much variety of what artists are you know there's music artists that do that venture in the visual like there's so many types of artists and so our parents just didn't understand that and then but that's because there was no path there was no path carved for us yet correct right and so these professions of like engineering and medicine and law and all these things business whatever those paths have been are are clearly seen as those are direct links to achievement and success. I know if you go on those paths, then we don't have to worry about you. But the creative world, there isn't those paths carved out for us yet. And also there's a lot of fear behind it because yeah. there's a lot of uncertainties and unknowns, right? So I get it. Like I totally empathize and understand the first generation struggle and why there's a lack of understanding of the possibilities for creatives. And, and now we... At the second generation, I don't even think that any of the varieties of being artists are fully understood to us as well. We just know that there is a possibility because we kind of have our finances sort of, we're not going to starve. That's what we know. And we are now, I mean, in your situation, you're a doctor. So you have like a lot of freedom to kind of like navigate, you know, because you probably at this point as an artist in your spiritually probably don't need as much uh, of the material stuff, but you need more of the nourishment on the creative side that that fuels. I mean, because I kind of like I, I think that way now. I don't need yeah. the material as much. I just need to sit and interview a thousand to two thousand people in my lifetime. That I just got to keep doing because I I this was what nourishes me. Uh, right, being able to ve- veer off like you know medicine and art a topic and go into like a relationship and how that's been affected by your growth. Those are the kind of things that illuminate who you are as a human. And that's what draws me to to these stories is like, well, we know you came for, you know, for the medicine and the art story. But I want to hear the other side, like what makes V, Dr. Vingo, uh, uh, who she is. And, you know, the 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 things that you experience and the growth that you experience are, are that that's for me, like the texture of, of who you are as an artist. Oh, yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. Like, so you were talking and referencing about your own experience, about how you had to really break down once you started doing it, the understanding of who you really are, right? Yeah. I feel like I burned down the house, <laughs> like <laughs> literally <laughs> burned it to the ground after Can you talk COVID. about that. 
can you talk about why you would even say it's burnt down to the ground? Okay, so COVID, doctor. Now I'm chief of staff during COVID. And here I was coming home, afraid to hug my children, going straight to, you know, shower, change clothes, and then going through a really hard time in my marriage. All of this was happening at the same time, as well as now my art career all of a sudden came to a halt because I had just coming off of the tail of my largest solo show in 2019, which was all, it was called The In-Between. And it was about the identity of second generation children of immigrants and refugees and that space, right? That we live in between identity. This whole entire show took me two years to undertake and finish. And it was really gut-wrenchingly vulnerable and a lot of hard work. And so I was coming off of that, COVID happened. And it was it was almost like every I, I'd hit this burning point, burnout on every level emotionally, mentally, physically, um, artistically, but also medically, like all of it was was just on fire. And I had to, again, this is like, so I talk about the moment that I was depressed that led me to art. This was the second moment of my mental health that I realized if I'm gonna survive this, I need to make some major changes and I need to really be willing to understand why my life is where it's at right now How am I going to get to a healthier place for myself, for my children? But how am I going to figure out what I need to do for myself and who I really am? And once that started to happen, once I started making the hard decisions, then it became the internal work. The internal work of understanding what was really my voice in my head a lot of the time. The imposter syndrome, the high expectations, the perfectionism, the like roles of what it meant to be a doctor, a Vietnamese daughter, a mother, a wife, all these things, right? I had to really start to break down and figure out whose voice is mine and whose voice is not. And who's defining my life and how am I going to redefine my life? And I mean, talk about many, many nights of the dark soul I went through spiritually. I really like went through every aspect of my life during that year, internally working with a therapist, working with my, just being with myself, doing a lot of writing and just really kind of getting quiet, right? Because COVID, best time to get quiet, (laughs) something to do, best time to really work on yourself um, was really figuring that out. And when I, and I really did, I mean, I burned the house down in order to rebuild my identity of who I really was to that core and it was hard it was so hard so the expression that you had in the art uh that you did before this burning of the house yeah is it different does it feel different does it are, are are the subjects different in terms of what it's manifesting on the canvas hmm well, you know, art's always a really great way to for us to process our feelings, right? And what our life experiences are. So pre-COVID, my shows were about memory, about my identity and cultural identity. Post-COVID, I just had my first big show since 2019 
and it's called of warm impermanence. And it's, it's, it's a line from a David Bowie song changes, which I find so appropriate. And, you know, through this whole process, by the way, my spiritual journey, I've, I've come back to Buddhism. Um, I practiced meditation, five mindfulness trainings, and I became vegetarian and I became very clean in my life. And it, it, it gave me the space of clarity to really understand what my purpose is and work in life. And my art has become this place of, um, of it's still a place of healing because that work was still there, right? Like the cultural identity stuff, like that's still there and I'm still doing it. But this new body of work that I have is, is my abstract work is based off of where I was in the past, like several years in that place of healing. Um, and in place, it's just interesting. So in, in, in that process of like, when you've done everything that has been expected of you, you've proven yourself in a way where it's like, I don't I, when you realize that you no longer have to prove yourself to anyone, but yourself and realize that the only person that can heal others around you is by healing yourself first. It, it becomes really clear for me at least as to what my purpose was and, and why everything served its purpose in my journey. You know what I mean? Like I, I don't ever regret anything. I don't believe that, that there's any purpose in looking into the past and regretting. I think it's about like looking at everything that's happened to you and understanding that this is just another point of growth and where you need to go to become your fullest self. Yeah. And a lot of times people may not be aware of that. And, but for me, it was, everything was cataclysmically happening right. that I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice, but to face all those things and the truths and the pains and the hardships and take accountability for my own actions, take accountability of how I lied to myself, to be honest with you, you know, how I lied to others, you know, and, and at, at, at the cost of myself and at the cost of other people. And so it was like one of these things, like I need to transition and change myself in order to be my best version of myself for my kids and for my job and, you know, for my family and friends. But the only way I can do that is to, to really find myself first. And I think it was like reading Tip Not Fun and kind of really breaking down like our thought patterns and how we create our own suffering really hit home to me. You know, I was already meditating. I'd already started living a clean life, like, you know, not, not drinking, although I was never a big drinker anyway, but like just really making these practices of like how I can be a healthier individual. And then finding Buddhism was kind of like the thing that kind of pulled it all together for me, like the, the mindfulness trainings and understanding of like the energy like us as creatives, the energy that we want to put out is also dependent on the energies that we bring in. So uh, along the way of being a doctor, an artist, um, being in medicine or business, mm -hmm. often we have goals that we want to attain. Um, mm -hmm. But the journey of going through Buddhism and being an artist doesn't have an end goal. However, with that, training that you have as a as a medical professional do you often frame the work that you do as an artist to have goals or do you don't have goals and you allow yourself to kind of just create 
You, you know what I realized that I really disliked part of that 10 year moment of like practicing and all that kind of stuff is I actually don't like having my life planned out for me. It's like, oh, it's like, you know, it's like I, I as much as like it took so much planning and like planning ahead and working hard on stuff and having these goalposts, I, I, I disliked it very much because it felt too controlled and it felt so like, well, it, it takes a surprise out of life. Right. Like. I like not knowing where my life's going to go. I know that's really scary for a lot of people and that uncertainty is kind of scary, but damn, our parents did it. You know, I'm sorry. I'm swearing, <laughs> but like, you could say what <laughs> my parent, you know, our parents like went into the night of complete uncertainty and with the immense amounts of fear of knowing where they're going to end up. So how could I possibly be afraid of what lies ahead of me when I already have so much that they didn't have. This episode is brought to you by Somkai Distillery, my only go-to gin company. Established in 2018, Somkai Distillery is Vietnam's first gin distillery founded by Daniel Nguyen, a Vietnamese American from Southern California. No matter how many people I have at my parties, we are always pouring Somkai gin. Somkai gin is handcrafted in small batches and prioritizes using botanicals and ingredients that are native and heirloom to Vietnam. The result is a product uniquely Vietnamese in taste and aroma. Somkai is now growing to include rice wine and traditional Vietnamese herbal liqueurs similar to Amaro. Somkai prides itself in Vietnam from the farmers who grow the fruits and herbs to the artists behind the artwork and design. Somkai is a community effort of people who are proud to be Vietnamese and collectively embody the spirit of Vietnam. Right. In, in, in regards to stability and, and feeling safe. But that's the thing. The more handbags we have, the more like watches we have, the more material yeah. possessions we have, the more, you know, constricted we are in this modern world. And that's sort of like yeah. this. That's the liberation of being a creative. But at the same time, you still need to have some goals to to hit your exhibitions, to become yeah, a mean, successful artist. I take life now very differently than I used to. I believe as creatives, if we are the true messengers of the human experience, if we are fulfilling what we are meant to fulfill and living passionately in that in the present moment, the universe will provide. The universe has opened up so many opportunities for me that I never ever would have imagined had I tried to make goalposts. I'm just now following, I'm allowing myself to follow the journey and the opportunities as they're coming to me and saying yes when they feel right and when they align with my purpose. And what I've come to realize is that medicine and art are not that far apart in what their service is. They're in the service of connection with human beings. And it's in a place of healing. They both are. You know, having these conversations, you know, we're sharing our own journey and how we healed, allows someone else to hear it and allows them to heal and feel like that path is possible for them as well, right? I it, Like, it's not necessarily like mediums, there's oils and acrylics and there's sculpture and there's all these different things to be able to voice these different narratives the same thing with what, how we choose to move our life as creatives. Like medicine for me is, is still the same hand. 
you know, of healing. I'm just doing it in a, in, in a, in a scientific medical form, but also when I'm there talking to people, it's emotional and mental as well and connection and human connection to its core, honestly, is how I live my life. And I think, you know, by trusting the universe, like it's a lot more exciting. Like I do have posts of like, okay, well, when's the next show going to happen? Well, I'll be honest with you. Like I had this big show and then I have a second one in August, but I have nothing lined up for next year. Am I stressed about it? No, because I feel like the opportunities will come and I'll get that. But until then I'll continue doing my work. If I continue doing my work, those opportunities will happen, you know? And, and I, that's how I got into public speaking. Happenstance of the universe, because I said yes to myself. I said yes to my art, and that led my art to be obtained by Texas A&M for their multicultural center. And when I went there, I uh, met with a bunch of Asian student leaders. We had a great day of conversation, and then they invited me to be their keynote speaker at their leadership conference. And that led to another speaking engagement. And now it's led to like other art speaking engagements. And I spoke at a women's conference and I'm speaking at the Austin Film Society about storytelling. And it's just been unfolding. And this is without me looking for it. The universe is like bringing it to me because I'm allowing myself to be open and vulnerable and allowing myself to be my highest version of myself and my art that I feel like these things are lining up in order for me to continue that work. I want to get into the business of art, uh, the conversation of the business side of it uh, in a bit. But be just right before that, I want to ask a question where I am naturally curious about because uh, when I think of uh, art uh, as a kid, I think of like, oh, the my brother had, you know, my brother's a very skilled uh, animator and he can draw with his hands and on the computer. And when you look at the art that, you know, typically when we think of like just regular depictions of things like a fruit bowl or a, or a portrait, we think of like something that is very literal, uh, but yours is very abstract. And I think going back into your Instagram, I was watching, um, you know, I was looking for things that were very literal so I can latch onto so I can understand, but it, I had to go pretty far back to find different portraits and stuff like that. And then I realized like I was judging. Mm. I was judging to see if you could do the literal basic stuff that I, as a lame person who don't, who doesn't understand art very much who understand. So my question is this, um, there seems to be a progression for like the big artists, like Picasso and all these people, they can paint the literal stuff very easily, but they get into this abstract side. What do you feel is the sort of, that's not the right question. My, 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 I want to know sort of what is the journey from the literal stuff to the ability to do this really abstract stuff. That's part one of that question, the abstracts, the, the journey to abstract uh, mm -hmm. painting. And then as like my mom or my dad would look at these types of paintings in museums, it was like, I, we don't understand what's the point of this. So how do we explain this to our parents' generation, what this abstract stuff look like? So the first question is, you know, what lead me through the, 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 the journey to sort of this abstract uh, method and sort of what are we looking at um, once we arrived at this understanding of how you get there? 
Well, I mean, I actually haven't fully abandoned the representational portrait work. If anything, actually, I'm starting to merge. I'm starting to merge abstraction and representational in a way, um, you know, I, if you look at historically, a lot of artists, they all grow and change and shift and change. Like, you know, a lot of them start off representational and then the abstract artists then start, you know, doing, you know, Picasso with in cubism and they start breaking it down, right? And they started like really getting it further and some go straight into abstraction and some stay always in representational. I think as each artist, it's really about what connects to you and what is your voice. For me, it's never been one or the other. For me, it depends on the narrative. To, to me, it depends on where I'm at in my life. How am I feeling at the time? Because my my show in 2019 was a mix of both. And also it was installation work. Because I've actually started going into installation work too. It's not just paintings anymore. It's like, you know, doing sculptural work that's better paintings, but also doing like site-specific large installation pieces. And for me, it's about the story. So being right brain, left brain, representational abstraction. Representational is recognizable. It's like the, 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 the steadfast data of information that you know this is a face, right? Like science. The abstraction is more the emotion, the place of memory, the place of feeling. So, you know, it, it's two sides of the coin. For me, I need, just like I need my right brain, left brain, I need to be able to do both. But really how it's expressed is dependent upon where I'm at in my life and what do I want to show? What's the exhibit about? How is the best way for me to express that exhibition? So a lot of my abstract work is more in like private galleries or large galleries. Um, but a lot of my narrative cultural identity work or political or, you know, um, more, you um, controversial or you know whatever identity based uh, work is actually I usually choose to do that in public gallery spaces where there's going to be more public interface for those conversations to happen because um, I do believe in art and activism that's another part of my practice that's really important to me so I don't want to negate one or the other saying this has been a journey and I'm only abstract because I haven't I still do both it's just a matter of dependent upon the show what I like about abstract work and what I would tell people and how to explain it is like when they look at it, I'd ask them, well, how do you feel? What is it making you feel? What's the movement of the colors? How is that translating for you? Um, and then allowing them to express it. Because here's the thing about art, visual art particularly, is like, or even written word, I mean, or, or even film, all of it, music, it no longer becomes, it's no longer yours. Right. Once you release it out to the world, whatever it was that had meaning to you no longer exists once it's out in the world, because then it takes on the ownership of the person that's viewing it and receiving it and consuming it, how they are affected and how they feel. And then that becomes their connection to the work. And I believe in that and I honor that, you know, and respect that process. Um, so for me, like I'm not, when I've had conversations with um it's funny that you say this because my very first solo show was at the Asian American Resource Center and it was called Strangers from Home. And it was more my representation work, a lot more of my portraits. It's my first solo show, right? And I remember overhearing uh, an elderly Asian man talking to the program director going, finally, art I can recognize. 
You know, like I finally understand this is the art that I need to see more of. And I started laughing because I was like, it's so, you know, I understand like, you know, like the, the generational gap in art as well of understanding it. Um, it's like music. Yeah. You know, it's like our generation of music is different than our previous generation of music. I don't understand this noise, you know, it's the same thing. Yeah. Um, but eventually they get into it. Like, it's interesting seeing my parents and how they've responded to my work. Um, they actually really like the abstract work. Um, although it's very complex. Um, my dad one day was like, I can't wait to see you do simple, more minimalistic work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? But like, I, I understand it's just so much, there's a lot of feeling in my work and there's a lot of complexities to it. And sometimes I think that translates to wherever you are emotionally too. If it's too hard to understand, it's maybe because you're just not in that place to, to receive it yet. Yeah. And, and and you're right. The analogy to music is the same thing for me too. I It's hard for me sometimes to digest the new music, but when you really take the time and keep an open mind and absorb what the youth are, are saying in their music uh it's it's just as messy it's just as complex and it might not fit sort of like the the the, the framework of what sort of how i feel but i can uh, i can appreciate it uh when i when i open up to to allowing myself to to go there it, yeah. takes, it takes an effort though it takes an effort but that's what's so great about art is yeah. like whether it be music or film or visual arts what it does is it provides a space for someone to be present, right? You're literally stepping outside of your life for a moment and allowing that person to get involved and in touch with their feelings and how that makes them feel, whether it be good or bad. It could be bad. It could be like, oh, I definitely don't like this. But for a moment, at least they're stepping outside their life, you know what I mean? And their worries and stress and they're connecting to something creative and it's making them feel something, whether it be bad or good. Now, the business side of this, um, I'm so sorry. This should not be happening that way. The, the business side of it. So when you are beginning this journey of, of art, how do you go about the idea of monetizing or is that not even part of the conversation in your mind? You're just like, I got to create. And like, how does it lead up to beginning a financial journey with the work that you do in art? Well, I mean, I think I, I have, I have a privilege, right. That let's, let's, let's just, you know, say what it is. I am a doctor, so I don't have to worry about medicine like or money to support me right and house me and give my kids clothes and food and all that kind of stuff like i don't have to worry about that and so in some ways i know this it's a privilege and i think that's the reason why i make it i feel responsible to do the hard work mm. and talk about the cultural identity stuff and be in a place of activism and be truthful in my work and not follow what's trendy, what's hot, which any no artist should do, by the way, at all. You should do what connects with your soul and, and who you are as an artist. But like, for me, I feel responsible that I have the ability to have a platform, like you have a platform, to really reach out and be able to bring in discussions 
that are things that our community needs most. The monetary aspect of it, the business aspect of it, no, no one likes the admin stuff, let's be honest. The time that we need to spend on our websites, our social media, connections with you know sponsors, buyers, collectors, all that stuff, it's, it's essential. You still have to do it. Like I wouldn't have commission work. I wouldn't have you know collectors if I didn't work at that. But I've trusted that the collectors will find me. So I always believe that the right person will buy my pieces. It will find the right home. I don't push it. I don't like really, that's not the, I have the liberty of not having that be the forefront of my thought when I create my work. I do put value in my work. And I think as artists, we need to learn how to value our work, how do not you devalue it. How do you put value in your work? By monetarily wise, like for painters, it's like, you know, per square inch, right? And you start off like a dollar per square inch or whatever. But like, as your work grows and your your experience grows, you should honor it by increasing the value of that work where you see it fits with the general market. And I think so often artists undercut themselves, like, and also like hold value in your work. Like, you know, so many times like companies will come out like, hey, you can put your artwork in my, our office and it'll be, you know, it'll be free publicity and a place for you to like interface with, you know, potential collectors, da, 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 da but they don't pay you for it. They don't pay you a leasing agreement. They don't, you know, like I, I really try to tell young artists, like don't throw away your talent just for exposure. Keep value to it. Make sure that people value work and be able to say no. That's but the other thing. Let's talk about that real quick with the young artists and the exposure. Mm -hmm. But don't you think having exposure a piece out in some like let's say at facebook or at twitter and you're in the hallways there and you have your piece up there isn't that currency of putting it up on the wall for free part of twitter and facebook where they actually pay for their their artists okay, you know, like that's a bad example but like at a big company that doesn't pay isn't having your piece there you're paying them for the exposure that so you you don't agree with that i don't agree with pay to play i think if all artists did that then no one's ever going to pay the artist what they're worth if all artists held a standard of how their practice should be and how they should their work should be treated then everyone levels up right like i, I get that like Sometimes exposure when you're young and starting off and you're fresh, then yes. If you feel like you need to go into a coffee shop and just put your art up on the walls and get that exposure, great. Do that. Do that. But at some point, you're going to have to hold value to your work, right? If you want to continue to be professional at it and grow, you're going to have to. It's kind of like, what was it, you know, dress the part? Yeah. Treat your work at the level you want it to be. Also, get mentors. People that are doing the work and that are, are at the level that you want to be at, build a community of, of mentors. Because it's not like it's a, like there's many journeys to being an artist, right? There's no yeah. there's no right way or wrong way necessarily. And I'm not saying that like my way is necessarily right either, but I think it's about standard of practice, like that we all should kind of hold an integrity into our work, but like find mentors, find people that you can learn from and grow from and like, you know, like learn how to become at the level that you want to be. And be able to also say no. 
I think too often we we sell ourselves short by saying yes to everything and not and it, it ends up sometimes the experience devalues us, you know. So we talked about not having really specific goals or really goal posts, but what do you expect in the next few years with your art? What do you what do you hope for? What do I hope for? So recently I actually cut back from medicine just a little bit. Not a lot. But I have, I do have that goalpost of eventually I would like to cut back in medicine so I could do more of my art full time. It's really funny. A lot of people see how much I exhibit and how much I do. I'm part of like an artist collective in town. I have like two big shows this year. They're like, are you still practicing? They're like confused. They're like, are you still in medicine? And I'm like, yeah, well, granted, I'm a hospitalist. So I do shift work. So that is how I'm able to have studio time, right? And then family time. Life work balance is very important. What I've also learned in my mindfulness trainings is that multitasking does not work. No. It's ineffective. Being present with what you're doing at that moment allows you actually more feeling of abundance of time. Really. It's a it's like it's the mindset of like scarcity of time versus abundance of time. When you're mindful in being present in what it is that you're doing. It's amazing how that makes you feel so much more abundant. I, I just learned that this year. I, I yeah. learned that you can't multitask and do the work uh, to some sort of like full level. You're no, not- it's never full level. Never it's full always level. like at subpar level. And then you're more stressed because yeah. you haven't really finished anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, like I've learned really- the meditation and, and getting quiet and being mindful and of whatever I'm doing presently. Like I'm dedicating this time with you, Kenneth, and like having these conversations, like, you know, it's, it's, it's fulfilling. And if you do that with every task, it doesn't burn you out, you know? So my goal is eventually I would like to cut back in medicine, do more art where it's impactful and I get more financial feedback from that that can start to take back more but also the public speaking has become like this other area that i'm exploring of like you know being a potential financial you know uh security as well but continuing it's another medium right for me to continue the healing conversation whether it be with the api community whether it be with the medical community whether it be with women whatever that is I, that still has yet to unfold fully you know yeah you have a lot of options there because of the the multifaceted life that you've lived yeah yeah and i think that's the purpose like realizing like i i've lived this life for a reason and now i have this ability to like share in all these different ways I think like the world's my oyster, right? Like I, I, I can really cultivate and curate my life however I want it, but also let go of any control of it and allow it to happen how it's supposed to gives you that freedom. You know, it, it I, I don't like go post necessarily because sometimes we hold on to it so tight yeah. that when things don't go our way or don't seem like they're going that direction, we just, we just end up disappointed and frustrated, right? And I've learned in my Buddhist practice of like releasing that and releasing things that you can't control and just being able to be grateful for what you do have in the moment and know that like more is coming. I always say I have all that I need and more is coming my way. Like that's a model that I've, I've inhabited, you know, took on from my ex that I really think is beautiful. Like when you go through life in that way, then you, you're never at a place of half empty 
you're always full. Um, I don't even like to say half full. I think I'm full already. Yeah. You know? yeah, it's a beautiful mantra. Yeah. And so ideally, I, I say this and I put this out in the universe, knowing that I may need to be flexible and change and adapt and change course. But I would love to be able to cut back in medicine, do art more full time, do public speaking full time. And eventually I would love to be able to do nonprofit medical work um, on refugee camps, you know, across the world. That would be that would be a dream, really. You know, I, I, I want to give back to the refugee community and, and be able because, you know, I don't know if Ai Weiwei is one of my biggest inspirations of artists out there. And he really puts together the art and activism. I don't know if you saw the documentary the Human Flow. Oh, uh, I, it, Ladder to the Sky or something like that was the first, was it that Ai Weiwei years ago? Ladder to the Sky? Ai Weiwei's first one, first doc that they did. I, I, yeah, I don't know if I saw one. The Human Flow one is about the human migration. I have not seen that. Is that a recent one? Probably within the past five years. Yeah, I think so. It was before COVID. I know because I saw it in the theaters when it came out. I don't even um, know. Yeah. And it's about the migration of humans. And Hello. there's like 70 million people displaced now worldwide from whether it be from war, poverty, climate change, you know, um, violence, like all these things which we take for granted. There are like, you know, 70 million people displaced currently. And you think about refugee camps all over the world. You think about, you, you think it's about crazy. The security of their emotional state, their mental state, like they have nothing, right? And and that's kind of like our parents. I mean. But, they, but they're still there. See, this is the other thing that people don't realize that there are families that literally are growing up on refugee camps for years. Like someone, I think someone, because I work with Refugee Services of Texas, uh, Central Texas, and I work with RAISIS as well, which is a refugee service that gives non um, pro bono law legal services to people at the border. Being in Texas, this is very close mm -hmm. to home, this yeah. whole like immigration and refugee crisis that we're having. And they were saying something like the average lifespan for people in refugee camps is like, I don't know, 20, 25 years or something like that. Wow. Like there are kids growing up in refugee camps with no education, no place to call home. You know, no country that will accept them and take them in. And I think about that and I'm just like, gosh, like if that had happened to our parents, what a different situation that would have been, right? Yeah, we would have been screwed. Well, there are some Vietnamese people, though, that stayed on refugee stateless. camps for a long time. That are still stateless in Thailand. They, they... Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's not current. It still is happening. So we have to like, I, I, I want to feel like, you know, the refugees are not forgotten because if they're not in the forefront of the news or whatever, they are. They're just forgotten on these refugee camps. And so, you know, I, I would like to kind of pay back for my parents' journey and refugee, you know, journey by working with children in refugee camps. You know, I'm interested how you raise your children. Do you have you changed uh, when you shifted as an artist uh, in the way you raise them or has it always been because you have this like deep artist uh, inside of you, you're from an early start, you gave them the, the, the luxury of, of whatever you guys can do, whatever you want. Like how do you structure sort of their upbringing? 
Very different. Very different. I mean, I, I think the... <clears throat> I have to be really careful of like how I say this because I, 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 I empathize and I'm compassionate to the first generation, right? Like parents and being a pediatrician, I understand this as well. Generalize, generalize, generationally people, when they become parents, only parent from the place that they know and what they grew up with usually, right? However, they were regulated as children emotionally is how they will regulate as parents. Okay, so if you have parents or family members that come from a childhood of war and where emotional intelligence was not in their vocabulary and they didn't have the capability or luxury to be emotionally aware because they're in survival mode, because that's really what they are. They're in fight right. and flight my, their whole entire life. So when you're in fight and flight mode, your cortisol levels, right, and your adrenal glands are heightened that there is no space for emotional limbic systems to come into play. Right. And so our parents, unfortunately, didn't have that luxury or nor that ability to connect with their own feelings. How can they connect with our and manage our feelings? Right. It was it was like you should be crying. Right. And it was hard. It was like a stern hand was what I was raised with and very strict, very traditional, conservative, strict upbringing. And because of that, and and me not being able to be expressive and really exploring what I wanted to do in a lot of ways, you know, I'll be honest, you know, I grew up with resentment, like a lot of second generation, we grew up with resentment and this disconnection with our parents. What I've learned through my journey and my and, and being a parent and a place of forgiveness and acceptance is understanding where their limitations were, I don't have to be limited in. Our parents came here and gave us the gift of not having those cortisol levels be elevated, not having fight and flight mode for our struggles and our stability and um, be able to now be in this place of understanding emotional and mental health, right? And emotional regulation. And so that's a gift. I feel like the first generation gave us that our generation now can carry and maybe help break intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Right. And so for me as a parent, I, you know, I raise my kids as a gardener. I don't know if you've ever heard this term. So there's two, there's, you know, either you're a carpenter or you're a gardener in your parenting style. Right. And being strict and like being told this is what you need to do. This is who you are. You know, the carpenter type. You shape them. Right. As opposed to gardeners, like I'm just going to water and I'm going to give you the food that you need, yeah. the emotional nourishment you need and allow you to become the person that you were meant to be on your own and let life happen, but hope that you are given enough of stability and emotional intelligence to make the right choices, right? So two different types of parenting completely, how I raise my kids from my, my But did my it change from, from their birth? And that transition, uh, as no. a, it's always been consistent. No, it's, it, uh, we, I put the kids in Montessori school early on. I knew emotional intelligence was very important. I allowed my kids to cry and, and throw their fits and didn't try to um, quiet them forcefully, you know, or keep them from that. I wanted them to be, feel safe with their emotions 
I think that's what it comes down to. I think uh, like as, as second generations, we weren't made to feel because our parents didn't feel safe in their lives. We weren't made, we were inherently not to their doing. They didn't know any yeah. better that we weren't made to feel safe in our feelings. Right. Because their feelings weren't legitimized. Our feelings weren't legitimized. So I was like emotionally isolated and that's where art came into play. That's the only place I can pour it into. And so because of that, like, then we grow up in this place of not trusting our emotions and our feelings and our intuition and going by what everyone else tells us is the right thing to do. Right. And this is what I've learned in the whole breaking down that I told you about is like coming into this place of understanding safety within myself. I need to be able to create safety for my children to allow them to feel safe and secure with who they are in their emotional space. And so my kids are both creatives. <laughs> That's awesome. Even though they're straight A students, which is I know my doing, by the way, it's also like interesting seeing um, genetic imprinting happening. Even though I raised my kids not as a tiger mom, not as a tiger mom, my first child is a perfectionist, overachiever, expects to be good at everything he does right off the bat, puts so much pressure on themselves bad, you know, talks hard about on himself, like all these things that I was trying to prevent through my parenting, he still is. Wow. Which is like, <laughs> but I'm giving him the tools to navigate those spaces, having yeah. walked it myself and understanding the pitfalls of that myself and helping him to understand he doesn't have to be those things and he can regulate in a better way and he can learn how to like unpack that self-critical talk you know what I mean? And not let it control him, you know? And so like, he's, he's, he's been, he's being given a lot more gifts that I wasn't in the sense of I've gone through it. So now I can tell you how not to be, but also like give you the emotional intelligence that I didn't have of how to process it, you know? Um, and he, he wants to be a screenwriter and uh, a filmmaker. And my youngest wants to be an artist and architect. Mm -hmm. It's so, so it's like he's kind of following mom's dream, you know, and so it's like uh, when she was younger. So it's just really great to be able to, like, foster their creativity in ways that, like, I didn't get a chance to necessarily, um, but also parent them in a different way than I was raised. And it's interesting because my my parents have have really surprised me because just by observation of how different I'm raising my kids, you know, they're understanding why it's why I'm doing what I'm doing, you know, like, and um, this is what I say is like, you can't force people to change. You can only model the life of what you want, model what you wanted to see, be your own best parent, live your life the way that you would have hoped you would have had as a child. And then let the world ripple around you and see how that changes people. Because I've seen my parents who in the beginning, you know, they're like, I was a pediatrician and my kids would get sick and my parents would be like telling me what to do. I'm like, come on, like, really, you know, or like, you know, when I would discipline them and my parents would be like, you're so hard on them. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? Not even a tenth as hard on them as, you know, I was as a child. But now like them seeing my kids, they're like, you know, you're so like, I've heard my dad say, you're so lucky you have your mom. Because we didn't know 
the dangers out there. We didn't know she was getting bullied. We didn't know, you know, and she knows the pitfalls of social media and like what pressures you guys have socially. And she can be there for you in a way that we couldn't like hearing my dad say that was like huge. Without asking, that's kind of a new one, you know? And so like, you know, I, even, a, even though the relationships will always be strained and a little bit hard because there's that generational disconnect, like I'm seeing how I'm living as an adult and as a parent, how by being in a place of forgiveness and acceptance, how that's giving my parents a little bit more freedom to um, maybe learn and, and maybe shift their perspective a bit, you know? Well, well thank you today for giving us something to shift our perspective you know, that uh, the work that you do is uh, phenomenal and the journey that you've led is is amazing. And I, I can't wait to see what the next few years is. You know, I, I all of my guests that, that come on, it's just, you know, it's exciting to get the first podcast out and then progressively throughout the next, you know, two decades to hear yeah. the journey of, of who you become. So thank you for, for sharing and taking that first step uh, being on this podcast. Thank you so yeah. much. Excited too. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea where it's gonna go. It's exciting. It makes life feel. It makes life feel. Um, yeah. Right. Like yeah. I feel actually. If anything, I feel like I've started my life over. Like I feel like I'm starting to actually. I'm living yeah. finally. Mm -hmm. I'm free, but also I'm living authentically myself. And there's something amazing about that where you just feel revitalized in life. You know what I mean? Like. Like they say, I feel your joy. Yeah. I hope so. I hope yeah. people see it in my art too, yeah. you know, v, and when they connect. So, V, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Kenneth. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at the Vietnamese Podcast.